he says there in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relationship, sexual relations with a woman. This was another thing that the Corinthians were saying. Some Corinthians were saying, hey, sex is just an appetite. I can do whatever I want. And other Corinthians were saying, it's best if you don't have sex at all. Don't even touch a woman. So what we have here are basically two views, prominent views of sex. And those are on the slide behind me. And these, by the way, if you think about it, these are very prominent views today. The first is sex is... Sex is good, it's an appetite, so I'm going to feed it. And the second one, you know, just like I feed, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm aroused, I have sex. I mean, that's kind of how they looked at it. The second view is, sex is bad, we should avoid it. We shouldn't talk about it, it's dirty, nothing good can come from it. The result of either one of these views is sexual immorality. Both of those views lead to sexual immorality. And that is the word that Paul uses in the original language. The word is porneia. He uses it a couple times in this passage. That's obviously where we get our word, English word, pornography. And even though Paul isn't specifically talking about pornography in this passage, he's not even, speci- he's not even really just focused on sex with a prostitute. Because back in those days, that's how people had sex outside of marriage. It was with a prostitute, and it was very common. It wasn't illegal. It was celebrated in Corinth, in fact. It was practically a religion. And so he uses this word, porneia, which means basically any sex outside of marriage or any sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity at all that is outside of the covenant of marriage. That's what he's talking about. That's the subject. So what does Paul say about sexual activity outside of marriage? What does he say? Here's what he says in verse 13. The body is not meant for that. Your physical body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. And we can't miss this next verse. Verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord. He he raised Jesus. We talked about that last week, remember? He raised Jesus from the dead, and he will also raise us up by his power. He's going to raise our bodies. So when a person trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, God joins them to Jesus in a very real way. We call that union with Christ. That's the theological term for it. And he sets in motion our future bodily resurrection. That resurrection begins when you put your faith in Jesus. And this means that if you believe in Jesus, that your physical body is for Jesus. And you are joined to Jesus like spiritual glue. And because Christ was raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead one day with a permanent body. It won't be just like this body. It won't be corruptible. It won't be perishable. It won't be mortal. It'll be immortal, incorruptible, imperishable, permanent. Probably more than physical is how we should think about it. If you think about Jesus' body, after he rose from the dead and he spent time with his disciples, we know that Jesus spent 40 days on the earth with his resurrected, glorified body. And we have a few accounts in the gospel narratives about Jesus interacting with his disciples during those 40 days. 
They could see him. They could walk with him. They could touch him. They could eat with him. And yet he had a newness and a permanence about his physical body. And Jesus is still glorified in that body. And when he returns, we will see him return in that body. And we will be with him forever. In some kind of bodily form. And so your body is precious to God. This is the point. Your physical body is precious to God. He cares very much what you do with it. God is saying that there's a relationship between our sexuality and our permanence as human beings. We, we, and we should not take this lightly because, as many of you know, sexual sin is not to be trifled with. It destroys people. It destroys lives. It destroys families. It can destroy churches. It destroys futures. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. So anyone, basically I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is anyone who practices sexual immorality is living as if Jesus is dead. They are living as if there's no resurrection. And he goes on. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul's assuming that sexual sin in the church is the result of a lack of knowledge and a lack of faith. So he reminds us first that we are united to Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about, our union with Christ. And one of my favorite passages that unpacks this idea is found in Romans chapter 6. We're just going to read a few verses beginning in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? He's asking these questions again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So the resurrection has everything to do with how we deal with sexual temptation. Do you see the connection? If you're united to Christ, you will live a new kind of life. That's what he's saying. Change will come. It has to. You can't be united to Christ and not change. You become a new person. You never stop changing. And because of your union to Christ, you'll be raised with a glorified permanent body that is in many ways more than physical. That's how awesome our union to Christ is. It guarantees us a future bodily resurrection, and eternity in the very presence of Jesus, joy unending, pleasures forevermore. That's our future. We talked about that last week. 
That's what we have to keep in view. So when a Christian engages in sexual activity outside of marriage, they're basically saying, heaven, glorified body, joy unending, eh, I'll stick with death and decay. That's what they're choosing. That's what we choose when we do that. Imagine for a minute a house that's in the middle of the desert. Nothing around it. But it's built on a firm foundation. And the house is being hammered by a storm. The sky is black. The rain is coming down in sheets, hammering the house. There's hail. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's hurricane force winds beating on this house. But the house is not moved. The lights are on. There's people inside. They're enjoying the peace. They're enjoying peace and comfort. They're safe and warm. The house is a refuge from the storm. And I want you to think about this storm as God's judgment on sin. God's judgment is beating down on the house. The storm is God's wrath towards our sin. And the house is Jesus. The house is Jesus. And faith in Jesus is our way into the house to be covered and safe from the storm of God's justice and judgment. In that house we find peace, we find joy, we find safety, we find security. When you sin sexually with your body outside the covenant of marriage, it's like you're choosing to walk out of the house naked. Out of that house, naked, with the storm raging. That is what I think is going on. You are naked and unprotected when you walk out of that house. You're walking away from Christ. You're forsaking Christ to join yourself with a stranger, a fantasy. It's one of the most dangerous things we could do with our bodies. And the only way I think for us to understand why that is, is to look at this phrase, one flesh. In verse, uh, I think it's verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, the two, for, for it is written, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now the two will become one flesh. Do you know where that comes from? The book of Genesis. Right after the creation of man and woman. God said the two will become one flesh. And even though we typically think of the phrase one flesh as God's way of describing the physical act of sex, it's not just physical. It's not just physical. He's talking about two whole persons, body and spirit, becoming one. He's talking about two people willing to lose their independence to gain oneness and intimacy. That's what, two be that's what one flesh means. That's what sex is for, to express oneness and intimacy. That means that sex is not just a physical act to satisfy your appetite. It can't be. You see, outside of marriage, sex is just about you getting what you want or need. Isn't that what sex basically, outside of marriage, that's what people do. We have sex to get what we want or need because, we, because it's fun. I mean, it's exhilarating. It's, we could go on. That's, but that's not what sex is for. 
God created sex so that you could give yourself completely to another person and not just your body because, remember, sex is about the total union of two people. One theologian, D.S. Bailey, is an English theologian. He says about this passage, Paul displays insight into human sexuality, which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. Sex is an act which by its very nature engages the entire person in a unique mode of self-disclosure and self Commitment. So sex is not a tool for self-gratification. It's not a tool for procreation. I mean, it, 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 God uses it for that. But sex mostly is a way for us to do radical self-donation. It's a gift from God that he uses for transformation. If you use sex just for self-satisfaction you're going to become spiritually deformed. If you use sex as a way to know and love your spouse, you'll become spiritually transformed. Do you see the difference? Uh, Tim Keller said, you can't have physical oneness without whole life oneness. You can't get physically naked and vulnerable with a person without becoming vulnerable in your whole life. That's what God is saying. You can't have that both ways. As far as God's concerned, you can never have sex with someone and then say goodbye. You can't have sex and hang on to your life. Sex is a way to give away your life. It is an act of self-giving. That is why sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman. For life. Any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is condemned by God. Not because God wants to steal our joy or rob us of fun, but because God loves us and wants to, us to experience the most joy and at the same time for us to be protected from danger. God knows that sex is so powerful an experience that it must be reserved for a man and a woman who have vowed to give themselves completely to one another and no one else for the rest of their lives. God knows that outside of marriage, sex dominates and destroys people. It enslaves people. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, uh, all things are beneficial for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In any sexual activity outside of marriage, you, if, if you practice sexual, if you practice any sex, sexual activity outside of marriage, you're asking to be dominant. You're asking to be enslaved. So what do we do? How can we, human beings who follow Jesus and love Jesus and are vulnerable to sexual temptation as much as anybody else, how do we protect ourselves against this powerful temptation? How do we experience freedom in Christ? Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Flee sexual immorality. That sounds, sounds easy, doesn't it? Why should we flee sexual immorality? There's three reasons. There's three reasons that we're given why we should flee sexual immorality. I'm just going to summarize them very, very briefly. The, the first reason is when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Why would you do that? That's what he says. Every other sin, he says, is outside the body. Now, I've I got to be honest with you. I don't really know what that means. I, the commentators don't even agree. It's kind of ambiguous. What does it mean that sex is the, sexual immorality is the only sin against the body? I'm not totally sure. However, I do know this. Sexual sin carries with it unique consequences that no other sin does. I know that is a fact. So do you want to open yourself up to those consequences? That's why he says flee. He doesn't say stand firm and fight. He says flee. The second reason is your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at the tabernacle and the the inner, you know, the outer court and the inner room and the inner the holy of holies and how everything, you know, how sacred it was. How I mean it represents the very presence of God. Paul here is saying that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit where the presence of God by His Holy Spirit dwells. Therefore, it is sacred to God, precious to God, your body is. He created you in His image to live forever in His presence, in His glory. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The third reason is, you were bought at a price, you are not your own. Your body doesn't even belong to you if, you, if you trust Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more about, more about that in a minute, excuse me. The conclusion of the passage is glorify God in your body. That's what your body's for, the glory of God. Now, I would like to give you some practical advice today. This is for all of us. Whether you struggle with sexual temptation or sexual sin, maybe you're someone who's practiced, maybe you're someone who's stuck or enslaved by sexual sin. This is for everybody. The goal of this passage is not sexual purity. And I'm telling you that for a reason, because as someone who used to struggle mightily with sexual sin and temptation, um, and used to give myself over to sexual sin repeatedly, I used to think sexual purity was the goal, and that's not the goal. The goal of the passage is the glory of God. That's the goal. The goal of this passage is intimacy with Christ, okay? Even people who don't trust Christ can be sexually pure. So I'm not supposed to be counting how many days I've been clean, in other words, and making that my priority. That's not what this is about. Freedom is only found through faith in the gospel, okay? It's not simply through fleeing sexual immorality. I just wanted to point that out. So let me add to that. Many people think that sexual temptation is a matter of just saying no. Just say no. Just stop doing that. That's very frustrating for someone to hear who's stuck in sexual sin, let me tell you. <laughs> because they can't. It's an addiction, the battle between believers and sexual sin 
is not fought in the final seconds. In fact, when Scott and I, when Pastor Scott, who was just up here before, we were at the Gospel Coalition Conference a few weeks ago, and it was a really awesome experience. One of the, one of the main speakers said something I won't soon forget. He said, he quoted this actually from a newspaper article that was written by an unbeliever. And the article said, the decision of whether or not to commit adultery is not made, or is, I'm sorry, let me say, let me start over. The decision of whether or not to commit adultery is made during happy hour, not in the hotel room. In other words, the fight against sexual sin, for us to, for us to decide to flee, which by the way is a present imperative, means keep running from it, keep going, keep running, is not a decision we make in the heat of the moment. It's something we do all day. It's something we do all day, every day. What I mean is this. Our problem, our primary problem, is not a lack of willpower or self-control. As important as those things are, our problem is a lack of faith, a lack of understanding your position in Christ. It's a lack of rejoicing in the reality of your future with Christ. People sin with their bodies because the gospel has become dull to them and they've become bored with God. That's why people go down a path of sexual immorality. They've become bored with God and so they begin looking for excitement somewhere else. And for many people, that's in sexual pleasure. When I was 11 years old, this is like 1985, okay? I'm putting, I'm putting myself out there now. I was 11 years old in 1985, and I was exposed to pornography for the first time. And, and I will never remember how it happened. I was riding my bike, innocently, I suppose, in our alley, in our house in Milwaukee, just riding my bike. And uh, I happened to glance, and this one guy had his garage door open, and there was a stack of magazines in the corner of his garage. And I, I remember, I knew what those were. I knew those were off-limits. My I, did, I knew enough to know that. And I rode past again and again and again and again. And ultimately, as an 11-year-old boy, I was lured away and enticed by the forbidden pleasures of the unknown. And that's all it took. It's <laughs> all it took. And for many, many years after, I struggled with Sexual temptation, sexual sin. And I wish someone would have been there to tell me, Dave, this will give you pleasure, but only for a moment. And this pleasure will leave you just as qu quickly as it found you. And it will take your life with it. You will discover things in this world that will arouse your senses. You will find beauty that will satisfy you for flashes of time, but it will be gone in the blink of an eye, and it will eat away at you. It'll just eat away at your life. You'll be more empty every time you fill yourself with this. Even if you take small bites of this, it will devour your mind. It will twist and distort your understanding of what's real. It will deceive you. It will cloud your judgment. It will rob you of joy. Let me show you pleasures you've never known. Let me show you a world of excitement and beauty you've never seen before. Let me show you something that will leave you full. Let me show you unknown pleasures that will make you complete. Let me show you joy that will change your life. All of this is found in knowing Jesus Christ. And if someone would have said that to me at 11 years old, you know what I would have said? Oh, Jesus? I know Jesus. I go to church. I go to Awana. I go to a Christian school. I know Jesus. 
I get bored at church. It's not all that exciting. Listen, parents, this is so important. If our children and our young men think that following Jesus just means going to church and going to Awana and memorizing our verses and making good decisions and doing good works and being kind and not doing bad things, they will, it's not even a matter of if, they will look for joy and look for pleasure and look for adventure in sex. We have to show our kids what it means to find joy in Christ. We have to bring them on the adventure with us. It's not enough to take them to church. It's not enough to take them to youth program. They have to see that following Jesus is a way of life and that it's the only way. Young people and adults, young people and adults risk everything to commit sexual sin all the time. Sexual sin offers incredible promises to people who are willing to risk it all. It is a high-risk, high-reward temptation, and we need to show our kids that Jesus is the better reward. And our kids will not believe that Jesus is if we aren't willing to risk it all for him. In other words, we have to show our kids that Jesus is worthy of our worship he is worthy of our affections. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our best. He's worthy of our money. He's worthy of everything. If your kids don't see that you are giving generously to Jesus, they won't, they won't buy it. If they don't see that Jesus has changed your life and is changing your life, why wouldn't they look somewhere else for that experience? He's worthy of our all. So I'd like to leave you this morning with two very important reminders. Number one, as the passage says, you were bought with a price. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. If you want to know God and have intimacy with God and experience this life-changing transformation and freedom, you have to lose your independence. You have to become spiritually naked and vulnerable. You have to give yourself completely to God. And you know what? God did that for us. God gave up his independence. Where did he do that? On the cross. Jesus became weak. Jesus was stripped naked and hung on a cross, his arms nailed open completely vulnerable and exposed so that we could be free, so that we could have intimacy with our Father, so that we could be joined to Jesus in union forever. That's why it's so important to flee because we're one with him. If you want to know God as he truly is and experience freedom in your life, you have to lose your independence. He, he did it for us first. He became independent for He became vulnerable first. God did. And the second thing I'd like to remind you of is that sin no longer has dominion over you. If you are in Christ, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus, 
no matter how long you've been in the grip of sexual sin, no matter how long you have, no matter how many times you've failed and confessed and failed and confessed and failed and confessed, through faith in Christ, through your union to Christ and his death and resurrection, you have the power to be free. Sin has no more dominion over you. Sin wants to kill you, but Christ has already defeated sin on the cross. You are free to flee. Think of it that way. You are free to flee. You are not chained anymore. You're not bound anymore. You can run to safety. You can run to joy. And if you don't, I can't promise you protection. And God doesn't either. And I wasn't planning on doing this, actually, but... I want to invite you this morning, if you are a person, because I, I'm, not, I'm not under the illusion that we're all doing great in this area. Okay, I've been, I've been in the church long enough to know that this is a serious struggle for many, many people. And it's, the, the nature of sexual sin is, it heaps shame on us. It causes us to hide. That's what it does. It causes us to hide from one another. It causes us to put on masks when we're around each other and to pretend that everything is okay. And I want you to know that the way to freedom is through fellowship and intimacy with God and his people. And that means we've got to take the mask off. You've got to take the mask off and you've got to come clean. And God will honor that. And many men in this church over the years have done that and experienced freedom. In fact, right now, I am meeting with a number of men who have said, I am not going to let this sin have dominion in my life anymore. I'm going to talk to somebody about it, and they're experiencing newness in their life. They have hope now because it's out in the open. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you're a man in particular, to please talk to me. Give me a call this week. Send me an email. It will be private between us, confidential. And that will be our starting point. I want to help you. I can offer you help and hope. Your freedom is promised by God. He's faithful. He will not withhold freedom from you. If you're a woman and you're struggling with this, Maybe don't talk to me. <laughs> Maybe talk to Sharon Spielman. Sharon, raise your hand. She's right, she's right there. I hate to put, put you on the spot like that, but Sharon would be willing to talk with you or someone, another woman in your small group, someone you trust, a small group leader or wife. or Pastor, you know, just talk to someone who you can be honest with. Because that's what we're here for. We're here to, we're going through this together. We're a family. That's what this is about. And we want to rejoice with you in that transformation. So please don't be afraid. Be bold. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victory that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus that no sin, no matter how powerful it is, no matter how shameful it is, no matter how much it's destroyed our lives, no sin can have dominion over us because Jesus Christ is alive. And we are joined to him in an everlasting union that guarantees our resurrection. 
in our future. God, for those who are ashamed, for those who have, for those who are, for those who are addicted, for those who are struggling, I pray that you would give them the courage and the, and the power to, to, to come clean, to not hesitate, to not waste another day so that we can experience more freedom and more transformation, so that we can be more like Jesus, so that our witness will be more pure, and so that we can rejoice in the future that we share together through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, which liberates us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.